Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. Like uh, many of you out there, uh, I've been familiar with, with tumbleweeds for a while, but almost almost exclusively as just this um, sort of mundane symbol of the American West, right? You know, mainly it's this type of thing you see popping up in old Westerns or uh, perhaps more to the point, old cartoons inspired by old Westerns. Anytime uh, you need the audience to understand this place is, is desolate, this place is in the yep. American desert, or this place is a ghost town. Uh, what do you do? You have the old tumbleweed roll by. Yeah, tumbleweed means nothing's going on. In fact, I think it's even a common gif, right? right. Sort of, you can meme a tumbleweed if uh, you were to indicate this thread has died or, uh, or you know, nobody's got anything to say. Yeah, there's nobody in here. This is It, it, rep- it comes to represent, like, not only desolation, but also uh, emptiness and tedium. You know, it's just like, in boredom. It's like, this, this place is empty. This place, there's nothing going on. This is the domain of tumbleweeds. And therefore, it's easy to think, well, tumbleweeds themselves are boring. Tumbleweeds, uh, there's nothing going on with tumbleweeds. There's, it's not the kind of thing you could do a two-part series on uh, for a podcast. Oh, but you would be wrong. Yes, yes. Uh, and, uh, and hopefully we will, uh, we will, we'll prove that in, uh, in the, this pair of episodes that we're going to be doing. Um, but, but before, just a, a couple of weeks ago, I was very much of the mind, yeah, tumbleweeds. They, they pop up in movies sometimes. A lot of times they look fake. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> for, we were actually looking at some clips prior to recording these. Uh, you know, does this look like a real tumbleweed or a fake tumbleweed? Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I wasn't always in a good place to judge this. Well, I think one way in which movie tumbleweeds often fall short is in uh, size, just the, the size shown. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, tumbleweed in a movie, it's always pretty much basketball-sized. It's very round, or, or maybe I, you could say like turkey-sized. You know, It's like a good yeah. Thanksgiving turkey, but it's made out of twigs. Uh, now, obviously, tumbleweeds can vary in size in reality, and we'll, we'll explain more about that as we go on. But you know, a lot of real tumbleweeds I've seen, especially in some of the more dramatic tumbleweed footage where, where humanity is really doing battle with with tumbleweeds uh they get big you know they're more in the like beach ball to beanbag chair range oh absolutely yeah the, uh, you know thinking about the the cinematic ones yeah a lot of the times when you see a kind of a essentially a, a fake looking tumbleweed an obvious plant uh, a plant that is itself a plant um it will be that beach ball or turkey-sized uh, uh, tumbleweed, just big enough to where it is amusing but not a threat. Uh, it'll just kind of be, uh, you know, lazily rolling by in the background. And uh, one film that uh, that I was looking at was pretty interesting because you can see both examples of this, and that's a 1936 film, The Petrified Forest, starring Leslie Howard, Betty Davis, and Humphrey Bogart, uh, which in, in and of itself is a tremendous film, but some of it is is obviously on more of a set or a soundstage, and other bits of it are filmed outdoors, uh, you know, p- perhaps in actual Arizona or at least somewhere in California that that you know yeah. fit the, the the bill. Location uh, shots, yeah, yeah. And in the location shot, in fact, there's an early location shot where you see Leslie Howard's character walking down uh, the street there, and there's a fair sized tumbleweed that that comes in at a, at a pretty swift pace. I don't know if they filmed it in. Uh, during an actual windstorm, or they just have some, uh, you know, some big fans going. Right. But uh, there's a moment there where I, when I was rewatching, and I'm like, oh, geez, I hope this doesn't hit Leslie Howard. That would, uh, you know, that that's, that wouldn't be very becoming of such a suave character. Well, isn't uh, the the beginning premise of the film that he has traveled out west in order to maybe commit suicide? So, is is it yeah. possible that he wanted suicide by tumbleweed? Well, I don't know how romantic would that be. Uh, I, you know, I think he he says that he uh, he's hoping to one day see the Pacific Ocean and perhaps drown in it. Oh, but yeah. uh, but uh, I, I can't imagine saying I hoped one day to to uh, run across a six feet tumbleweed and be demolished by it. I, I hope one day to to be absorbed by a sea of thorns. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. To, to to get back to to the the point here. Yeah. These t- tumbleweeds can get rather large, and I I never really realized this before until this uh, holiday season. This uh, that, that we've just gone through, uh, because this year or this previous year rather, just after Christmas, uh, my family we found ourselves um, driving south 
from Phoenix to Tucson, Arizona, and then west towards Las Cruces before cutting up to Albuquerque and then Santa Fe. And, um, and we were doing this because we originally were going to take a northern route uh, through Flagstaff, but winter weather forced us to pivot. So here we are. Uh, we're going uh, on Interstate 10 between Tucson and Las Cruces. And what, uh, w- during my stretch of the driving, uh, we begin to enter this, uh, this, this, this uh, you, know, the, uh, you know, we're in the desert, is you know, desolate. Uh, we get these uh, advisories about possible, uh, you know, wind, possible uh, dust storms. And, uh, and then I begin to see the first tumbleweeds. Uh, and, you know, I've been going out west for a while now, and I don't think I'd ever really seen a tumbleweed in action. Maybe I'd, maybe I'd seen one small, like, turkey basketball uh, size one. But this was the first time I started seeing some real bad boys, some real monsters uh, rolling around, uh, for, first of all, at the, you know, sort of the side of the road, or sometimes, like, mm-hmm. stuck up against a fence. But then eventually, uh, they're, they're crossing the road. They're being blown across the, uh, uh, the highway. And it's quite alarming because again, some of these are, are huge. They, we were we were commenting at the time, perhaps overreacting, that they they look like they're the you know, about uh, half the size of a Volkswagen. Did did you hit one? Oh yes, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah eventually, yeah. they started hitting them. And, uh, did they uh, explode? Yeah, they kind of, or it's kind of like um, it's like frosted, uh, not frosted. Uh, what, what were they? The, the frosted big, mini wheats? Yeah, no, but not the mini ones. The big Oh yeah, okay. It's yeah, like a shredded mini wheat. wheat. Yeah, like shredded mini wheat. Uh, the shredded wheat hitting the front of your car. They just kind of, uh, yeah, crumple and implode, and um, part of it gets stuck under the vehicle. But it's alarming because they're so big in volume at the size uh, at the time. I don't know why I thought of it this way, but I was imagining it's like running into a ball of about five thousand toothbrushes and toothpicks all loosely taped together. Yeah, yeah, and it's. Yeah, it's like that, and yeah, you're seeing them slam into other vehicles in the uh, the, the opposing uh, uh, side of the highway. I'm watching them just slam into the fronts of uh, tractor trailer rigs, and and it's weird to watch them because on one hand, there there's something about the tumbleweed moving around that is kind of comical. There's something absurd mm-hmm. about it, and so I'm kind of freaking out about the driving, and my wife is is just like cracking up, laughing at these things in the seat next to me. And um, and then the other thing is the way that they're you know they're they're not perfect spheres uh, they're not perfectly round they have this kind of oblong uh, shape to them so they kind of tumble and bounce and especially with the you know the uncertainty of the wind and also the aerodynamics of the the high speed traffic uh, the way that they behave kind of comes to to mimic that of an animal. You're trying to mm. figure out what's it going to do? Is it going to cross? Is it not going to cross? Is it going to halfway cross and then change direction? And so all of this adds up to this this anxiety I was feeling about these tumbleweeds because I'm I'm trying to 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 figure out what they're going to do and if I'm going to hit them. And then I have to make sure I'm not going to swerve and make the situation worse. Well, so with us talking like this, <laughs> I immediately wonder if it's like if it's like us also talking about trying to drive in snow, I don't know if you've seen the stuff on the internet where anybody who lives <laughs> up north makes fun of people from the south oh, who yeah. are like, you know, there's like an inch of snow on the ground and suddenly nobody can drive. Yeah, I, I imagine uh, that there are some um, some desert dwellers out there uh, who are who are, uh, are having a laugh at um, at at, uh, at, what, at how we're talking about this here. I mean, they're probably used to it. Uh, yeah, I just don't think I'd ever been down there or in, I wasn't in the right place at the right time to encounter like full-blown, literally full-blown tumbleweed season. And I was, I was actually wondering, like, why are there no signs advising uh, tourists about this? Like, they're warning us about what to do during the dust storm, but how about a, like, don't swerve, just go ahead and hit the tumbleweed, uh, you know, some sort of uh, a poster to that effect. Anyway, I uh, afterwards I started looking around though because I was curious. Well, you know, does this ever get out of hand, or is this just something where if you you're, if you live around it, you're used to it? Well, uh, I, I did some research online. I started running across news stories with headlines featuring things like tumbleweed nightmares uh, from as recently as last month, uh, in which winds basically blocked uh, certain New Mexico roads with tumbleweeds, or a 2020 NBC headline quote. 30-foot tumbleweed pileup traps cars, semi-trucks on Washington Highway. Or another one, uh, this, this was quite impressive, tumbleweeds bury New Mexico town. And if you start looking up footage or images of some of this, um, it, it's, it's not as much of an exaggeration as, as you think. Like you're looking at, at two-story 
like suburban homes and the tumbleweeds, which again, you're talking about tumbleweeds that can reach, you know, uh, sometimes like six feet in diameter. They're piling up. They're reaching the second floor of the house. Yeah, piled up like heavy snowdrifts, except probably even more difficult to deal with than snow, right? Because snow, I mean, you can at least shovel out of the way. I don't know if I would say easily, but to Mm -hmm. some degree easily. Tumbleweeds are notoriously difficult to handle and deal with. I I think because of their size and their shape and the composition, like the thorniness of them, it's difficult to just grab them because they're usually thorny and and in, in some way repel your flesh. And uh, it's also difficult to to sort of scoop them out of the way because they tend to break. Yeah, with, with snow, like one of the great things about snow is that even if you don't shovel it, um, usually what's going to happen is it's going to melt, right? The, the sun's mm-hmm. going to come out, temperatures are going to rise, that snow is going to melt. The tumbleweed is not going to melt. The tumbleweeds amassed <laughs> against the side of your house might not distribute on their own. And... They might catch on fire. They might catch on fire, yeah, because they're basically, they're dried out, uh, lifeless, brittle um, uh, vegetation. So they're they're a fire hazard. They're a legitimate fire hazard clumped up against the side of your house. So you've got to get rid of them. Or if they're not, again, if they're not against the side of your house, then they're perhaps blocking the road. Uh, They can also cause other issues. You know, they build up against fences. They can interfere with, uh, with drainage systems. Um, Because, again, a lot of the environments we're talking about here uh, are very dry most of the year, but then there will be a deluge. And uh, during that time, you need to have sufficient uh, drainage systems in place. You don't need those drainage systems and canals, et cetera, clogged with old tumbleweeds. Uh, They can also interfere with uh, um, uh, irrigation uh, systems. Uh, They can can cause a huge mess. And they do cause traffic accidents. I'm re- I was reading about one in uh, Jadito Wash that was apparently so impressive that the Arizona Daily Press did a 10-year anniversary story about the incident. And Whoa. I included a, a photo from, from the story in our notes here, Joe. It does look quite impressive. You ever like comb a shedding dog and end up with all these clumps of hair <laughs> that you need to get rid of at the end? But then now imagine that, but it's 20 feet high. Yeah, it's like like Clifford the big red dog or a Marmaduke sized uh, 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 pile of, of of shavings here. Now, like you were saying, yeah, it, it's difficult to clean all this stuff up. What do you have to do? You have to get a work crew out there. They've got to uh, to gather these materials up. You got to put them into vehicles uh, and and take them somewhere, take them away. And they're mostly air, uh, so you right. end up like really filling up a, a vehicle. But then you know the the, the weight volume isn't there, so. Uh, you know, you start doing the math on, on you know, the, the cost of labor, the cost of uh, materials, the cost of transportation, and, uh, and the, the, the cost ended up really skyrocketing for the various uh, counties and towns and cities that have to engage in this kind of cleanup effort. Uh, one of the articles we were both reading for this episode is a, a PBS article about tumbleweeds by an author named uh, Gabriel Akiros. But uh, citing information from somebody named Ariel Varayo, a deputy agricultural commissioner at the county's weed abatement division in uh, Lancaster, California, uh, Kiros writes, quote, in the cities of Palmdale and Lancaster, tumbleweeds are such a big problem that Los Angeles County spends $100,000 to $150,000 yearly mowing and chipping dried out Russian thistle. That's the name of one specific dominant uh, species of, of tumbleweeds tumbleweed uh, in vacant lots and abandoned agricultural fields before they can tumble away. Yeah. So this is above $100,000 a year of a problem for one county. I mean, a big county, but uh, uh, every year. It's enough to make you wonder, um, you know, there's got to be a a better way, right? (laughs) There's got got to be some sort of technological improvement uh, that that we could make that would uh, would improve the situation. Uh, and, And indeed, uh, I've, I found evidence of a of a really promising and and frightening looking uh, project uh, oh that I'm not sure ever really quite uh, got off the ground. Uh, but I, I want to read verbatim from this 1996 LA Times article by Eddie Pels. Go for it. All right, here we go. Las Cruces, New Mexico. It looks like a contraption straight out of a Stephen King novel. Huge metal spokes swirling away, shredding everything in its path. But the invention from New Mexico State University's Advanced Manufacturing Center is out only to mow down the bane of the West, the ever-present tumbleweed. 
So you shared video of this mangler with me, <laughs> and it does look like a beast. Yeah, I found uh, this this archived uh, video that was put out, I think, by the by New Mexico State University, um, or perhaps the the State Highway Department. I, f- I forget which, but it was it was all about this this promising new uh, project, and it included footage of the the prototype. Uh, for this. Uh, the, the invention we're talking about is the, the tumbleweed crumbler. It was developed via a $40,000 contract at the time to New Mexico State University from the State Highway Department to develop a better way of collecting and shredding the tumbleweeds. And the prototype was essentially uh, a pair of rotating, like inwardly rotating metal spokes hooked to the front of a snowplow truck. Um, yeah, so it's like drum barrels, imagine, that are sort of rolling inward as if, you know, to, to roll things into the gap between them, which is pretty small, and that it's got spikes sticking yeah. out of of the drums. Uh, and there's a, a really excellent part of the video where a guy is standing right in front of it while it's yes. running, kind of feeding oh. tumbleweeds into it. And we were thinking like, oh, is he going to reach in there to try to clear out a jam by hand? Yeah, it's going to be like one of those uh, like shake hands with danger safety videos. Yeah. It just looks yeah. very unsafe, and and I don't I don't know. I <laughs> may, may, the guitar twang comes in. Yeah. Goes, Johnny thought he could save time <laughs> because the I mean it's terrifying, but it also looks really effective. They show it uh, uh, like running into mounds of tumbleweeds. These uh, these wheels with the sp- with the spikes on them. They grind up these uh, these tumbleweeds, and then the the, the ground up remnants are like sucked up and shot into the back of the the snowplow truck. So, uh you know, th- this seems like a, it seems like it would would have been a great fix because first of all, you have the snowplow trucks anyway that are being used uh during you know parts of the year to to deal with uh, keeping the roads clear. And then snowplow trucks uh without this kind of spike contraption are apparently sometimes used to clear the roads of tumbleweeds anyway, though, of course, they're just mostly pushing them out of the way and not really, you know, not collecting them. So it seems like this would have been a, a, a cool way to to deal with the problem. Well, so are these machines de rigueur now? No, I don't think they are. That's the thing. You know, you, you see a, you see an article like this and you see, see footage like this. And again, this was 96. And as far as I can tell, this this ended up not really going too much more beyond the prototype phase in the video they're talking about they're going on to another phase of development and i don't know maybe uh, I, I couldn't find an answer as to why yeah. exactly they didn't go with this maybe it just came down to something as mundane as uh you know the, the you know the money or politics yeah. uh, not cost effective or something. yeah maybe yeah. it just wasn't cost effective um i don't know maybe it was too dangerous i i have, I have no no way of knowing and i wasn't able to to find out but this seems to be a trend with a lot of issues related to the problem of tumbleweeds, uh, particularly in the United States. Uh, I kept running across uh, promising-sounding scientific solutions uh, from years past, solutions that in many cases may still be in development, but, but, but have not reached that point where someone is out there saying, yes, this is the thing we're actually doing. Tumbleweeds, watch out because we're coming. Though some of these solutions do get more sci-fi than the mangler. Yes, yes. All right. Well, I guess it's worth explaining at this point, what are tumbleweeds? Uh, and I think the most important point to say at the beginning is that technically tumbleweed is not a single species of plant. Tumbleweed is a common morphological feature of a number of different species of plants spread out across different families. Though in the American context, there is one single species in the, uh, in the amaranth family that uh, tumbleweed most often refers to, but it's by no means the only one. And we'll talk more about that species in particular later. Uh, But the broader category of features of a tumbleweed is this. So a tumbleweed is the above ground structure of a plant, which at maturity dries up and snaps away from the root structure and then is blown around by the wind, scattering seeds as it goes. Yeah, it's sometimes uh, referred to as a detachable diaspore. Yeah, and and a diaspore is basically any seed and other structure that helps a seed spread. So a diaspore could include, like, say, a little parachute-like thing that catches the wind, or it could include, uh, like, a fruit that, you know, that an animal would eat. It's the thing around the seed that helps the seed get where it's going. Yeah. But in this case, it's pretty much the entire above-ground part of the plant. 
Uh, and so there are variations between different species, but in most cases, uh, you can picture for tumbleweed a bush-like plant that becomes very brittle and dry and has a big tangle of different stem segments. And eventually it, uh, it breaks off at the roots at roughly the place where the stem meets the ground. And then it rolls around on the plains driven, driven on the wind, but like a giant inflatable ball. Now you might think, okay, most plants don't break off at the place where they meet the ground and then get their bodies blown around dead and dry by the wind. So why do tumbleweeds do that? Well, actually, the answer is similar to the answer to the question, why are fruits delicious? Uh, the, the answer is it's for seed dispersal, meaning the transportation of seeds and thus the next generation of plants away from the parent. And uh, a, a lot of plant species actually spend a, a great effort at seed dispersal, and there are a host of different strategies available. So, for example, there is animal dispersal. So you can think of uh, the seeds of edible fruits. The fruit is tasty and dense in calories, so animals want to eat it. The animal will be attracted to the fruit. They'll nom nom, they'll swallow it, and then they will travel elsewhere on their, their wings or their legs, and then they will defecate and deposit the seeds in a new home. Uh, but that's not the only method of animal dispersal. There are also the burrs that cling to the fur of mammals that uh, that brush up against the parent plant. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if, if you've got pets that are burr magnets like my dog is, but you know, sometimes Charlie will will get into some bushes, and then when he when he comes out, it's a problem. <laughs> he has probably like you know a, a thousand of these things stuck to him. Mm. And and there are a bunch more. There, there, for example, there is a whole class of uh, of uh, diaspores that are spread specifically by ants. The you know the, they have specific relationships with ants that will maybe bury them underground in in a way that's uh, preferable to to the plant. But there's also uh, wind dispersal. So you can think of the seeds of dandelions. They they contain a natural parachute-like structure that catches the breeze and allows the seed to be picked up by the wind and blown to new lands. There's water dispersal. Coconuts are a great example here. They float on the water and allow currents to carry them to new germination sites. There's gravity dispersal. That's what it sounds like. There's explosive dispersal. That one's fun. Yeah, yeah, bursting pods and so forth. So there are a number of different methods, uh, and there are some primary reasons that a plant would want to disperse its seeds, to get the seeds away from the parent plant. One idea is that doing this uh, reduces competition between the, the seed and the parent plant and with other nearby uh, adult plants. So just like animals, plants need access to resources and uh, one example here would be sunlight. Plants need sunlight in order to power photosynthesis. But if they fall straight down off of the parent, this could limit them, right? Because they could be trying to grow in the shadow of the adult plant. And you can imagine other competitions uh, for nutrients in the soil, for water, and so forth. So one reason seeds might be dispersed is that the is that it allows the parent plant and the offspring to grow separately without competing with one another for access to the same resources. You know, that, that does make me think of the old saying, uh, you know, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Uh, <laughs> but that saying really kind of misses the point because it's not, the, the apple's not supposed to just fall off the tree and remain there. Uh, and then the seeds are going to end up in the soil right there beside the parent tree. Like the idea is that this is animal dispersal, that those seeds are in this lovely, delicious apple that's going to be uh, consumed or carried off by some other creature. That's a very good point. If the apple stays too close to the tree, that could be really bad for the young apple. Right. Or the young apple tree, I guess. <laughs> Um, but then there are other reasons. Uh, so th that's just one possible motivation uh, in the evolutionary sense. Uh, other evolutionary motivations for seed dispersal would be, say, uh, limiting bad things that can happen to young plants when they tend to be densely congregated around the parent plant. Uh, so the, these bad things could include contagion, could include uh, the you know the spreading of pathogens that would spread. Uh, among densely congregated plants, or the harvesting of predators. So if, say, seeds are potentially edible and they all fall in one place right around the parent, this often results in, say, an animal 
that would eat those seeds or would eat those young plants, the seedlings, uh, coming gobbling them all up at one time in one big buffet. But if they spread out all over the place, the, the risks of things like pathogens and predators are reduced. And then other motivations could be things like colonization of new areas without competition. So you might want a way to spread your uh, your offspring plants to areas that don't really have any other plants in them right now. You know, uh, just kind of some bare ground if it can be located. And in the cases of tumbleweeds in particular, that often is located because tumbleweeds can grow in areas that many other plants can't tolerate or haven't been able to take root in yet. Right, and, and that's going to be key moving forward, so keep that in mind. Right, uh, and uh, but another thing might be that uh, seeds uh, would be dispersed so that they could target a specific germination spot where the plant is likely to thrive, and you could interpret that in a couple of ways. Uh, for example, some animal dispersal would mean that the seed ends up either buried in the ground or maybe surrounded by dung which can protect it and provide other benefits. Or in other cases, uh, this might be methods of dispersal aimed at getting the seed to a certain kind of landscape or environment. Yeah, and I guess one thing to keep in mind, it kind of goes back to the whole day about, idea about the apple falling far from the tree. It's not about where the apple initially falls. It's about where the seeds end up. And with the tumbleweed, it's actually quite similar. It's not about it's not about really where the tumbleweed uh, ultimately goes. It's about the seeds it drops along the way. That's right. So if you apply what we've been talking about uh, to the tumbleweed in particular, how does it disperse its seeds? Generally, what, what the detachable diaspore of a tumbleweed plant does is dry up with a bunch of seeds in it. And then it will be blown about by the wind, dropping seeds as it goes, because it'll be kind of dry and brittle. So it bounces over the landscape, uh, sort of degrading and breaking apart as it as it blows around, and it'll drop seeds intermittently. So all over the place, you get you get vast seed dispersal with this method. Yeah, and thousands course, and thousands of seeds. Yeah, yeah, totally. And also, if there are any seeds left in the tumbleweed when it reaches its final destination, whatever that is, I mean, I guess there probably usually are some seeds still left in it. Uh, it, it can uh, it can try to germinate from wherever it comes to rest, especially if it finds a water source, if it happens to land in a place with moisture. Yes, but one of the, the interesting things to, to keep in mind is that, again, this is a plant that does extremely well in barren environments. Uh, so like an abandoned agricultural site, oh, that's, that's, that's pristine for the tumbleweed. Uh, you know, a vacant lot, yes, it wants to get in there. Uh, but one of the things about, say, tumbleweeds accumulating in a well-irrigated yard is that uh, I've, I've read that those, those tumbleweed seeds, if they land there, they're not going to really be able to compete with the, the, the grass that's growing there. Right. Uh, so, yeah, this is ultimately a plant that is at its best uh, – in the worst of environments, at least from, uh, you know, from, from, from a, a typical human perspective. In the worst of environments or in environments that have for some reason been cleared of their natural vegetation, yes. which often happens in the case of human development. Yeah, and I, I think it's worth, this is something that I, I saw pointed out in a couple of different sources. It, it's easy to, to, get, to get in this mind, because again, tumbleweeds, and we'll discuss more about this, you know, they're, they're a pest, they're, they're, uh, and, and uh, they're, they're, it's, it's a problem that people are having to deal with. But you can't just look at the tumbleweed like a disease, you also have to look at the tumbleweed as a symptom of land degradation. Land degradation, yeah, yeah. So uh, let's talk about the life cycle just a little bit here. So, um, so what happens once that seed uh, lands in just the right spot? Well, uh, they don't need much water at all to start growing, and they have this kind of um, like screw-like shape. They're, they're kind of interesting to see the, the close-ups of the seed. And then when they start growing, they start out looking like just blades of grass. They have kind of a, like a, a pinkish, uh, like a white and pinkish uh, um, section towards the bottom. They almost look like, it almost looks like some sort of weird onion grass or something. Oh, yeah, yeah. Now, I want to be clear. At this point, we're talking about one species of tumbleweed in particular, the one right. that that Americans usually mean when they say tumbleweed. So yeah. now we've narrowed it from the broader class of tumbleweed structures to the plant people are usually calling tumbleweed, which is known as Calitragus or Salsolatragus or more commonly prickly Russian thistle. But yeah, that, that's the one we're talking about now. And yeah. And, and and I'll get into a, a fascinating little history lesson about that one in a bit. Yeah, and if you're a singing cowboy, 
uh, this is the, the variety you're probably singing about. Yeah. Unless you're like a really, uh, like you're a singing botanist cowboy, and then perhaps you have a more robust, um, uh, you know, lyrical treatment of the, the whole situation. Uh, but yes, your your description is good. Yeah, so like usually white and pink lower stem areas branching out into green grass-like structures above. And in in this young form, eh, you know, this plant doesn't look quite so uh quite so threatening, you know, it's not thorny mm-hmm. yet, it's not dry and brittle yet. And uh and according to the way it looks, in fact, this this young form can be eaten by some animals. Yeah. And it it should be noted that the initial leaves here are long, but then these spring leaves eventually fall off and they're replaced by shorter leaves. Uh, Each flower contains a a fruit that develops into a single seed. But then in the late fall, uh, and and again, we're just talking more or less about one variety, you see some some differences depending on the variety of tumbleweed that you're you're looking at, the different species. Uh, But during the late fall, they begin to dry out and die, and the wind eventually breaks the dead tumbleweed free of its roots. And uh, as uh, as described in that uh, that PBS source we, we referenced earlier, it's a clean break. Um, it's it's the sort of thing you could compare to like a, a lizard shedding its tail uh, due to a microscopic layer of cells at the base of the plant called the abscission layer. Uh, so this allows it to just snap off. So the part of the stem that was made to snap clean, it's like the the part of the lizard's tail that can uh, that can shake off for autotomy. Yeah, yeah. So it's. It's easy. You would be forgiven if you just, you know, casually thought, well, you know, it's it's a dry place, and these bushes they just get so dry and dead, and then the, it gets so windy here, it just snaps the bushes off and they roll around. Um, but no, it's it, it is that, but it is also a, a species that has evolved to take advantage of of this environment and to snap off at just the right place and at just the right time. Now, I saw some wildly different numbers about how many seeds an individual tumbleweed plant can drop as it rolls around. I, I assume, obviously, this varies by species, but even just with reference to Calitragus or, or the, the Russian thistle, I saw people mentioning that you know one can drop a, a few thousand seeds, like maybe 2,000 or 2,500, and then I saw estimates of like hundreds of thousands. So I, I really <laughs> don't know which one is more at the correct end there. Yeah, I saw tens of thousands. Uh, I guess the take-home here is that we need to think of it, again, not as like a single seed, but a, uh, a depositor of many, many seeds. It's yeah. not about where, the, where it goes. It's about the seeds it drops along the way as it tumbles, as it bounds across the landscape, as it weaves in and out of traffic and collides with semi-trucks. Um, it's just going to spread all the seeds across the way, and all the ones that land in just the right spot are going to have a shot at growing into uh, plant into adult plants themselves it's one of those evolutionary marvels which is in fact neither of these things but kind of strikes you somehow as stupid and genius at the same time yeah and i think that's that again kind of cuts to the, the reason that tumbleweeds can be both frightening and impressive in person but also innately comical there's just something kind of redonkulous about this large bush bumbling and bouncing across the landscape. Yeah. So I was curious about the, you know, the physics of the, of this thing. I was like, and, and my, and my wife even brought this up. She's like, surely somebody's looked at the, the physics of this. So uh, I was looking around and I found a, a wonderful book by Ralph D. Lawrence, a planetary scientist and engineer at the John Hopkins Applied Physics Lab. It's titled Spinning Flight, Dynamics of Frisbees, Boomerangs, Samaras, and Skipping Stones. And uh, th- there's, a, uh, there's, there's only a brief part of the book that really gets into tumbleweeds. Um, and ultimately, he ends up talking more about tumbleweed rover designs, which I'll, I'll touch on briefly in a minute. But uh, first, I want to read this quote from the book by Lawrence. Quote, it is worth noting that the center of mass of a tumbleweed is generally offset from the geometric center. To what extent this is an inevitable consequence of the dendritic architecture of a plant in that the branches must converge towards an apex which is linked to the root system is unclear. It may be that there are dispersal performance advantages in such a departure from spherical symmetry. Tumbling, bouncing, rather than rolling may enhance the shedding of seeds from the plant. That totally makes sense to me. So if it were a more perfectly round dry shrub that were to roll away, it might roll better, but it also might shake 
uh, it might shake seeds loose in a less even way. But by having a kind of oblong or uneven structure, it's always kind of bouncing while it rolls. And with every mm-hmm. impact as it bounces, it can have a greater chance of shaking some of those seeds loose. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and he also points out that, that the tumbleweed is naturally porous. So when we look at the airflow, the air is flowing not only on and around it and against it, but also through it. Um, and he discusses he discusses most of this in connection again to the tumbleweed rover designs. Uh, these are various uh, uh, engineering approaches to creating some sort of a you know a rover or probe that will work on the. Um, uh, generally, we're talking about the surface of another planet or another um, mm. uh, planetary body of some sort, or a moon Mars or, something. or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah Mars uh, uh, is is often a target here because again, we have to remember there is wind on Mars, and uh, and if we could take advantage of that. Uh, that would uh, be a way to to move a rover across the landscape. Um, so you have various takes on this uh, that are you know and some are inflatable, some are non-inflatable, um, you know roughly spherical designs uh, to allow a rover to roll more or less like a tumbleweed. Um, but it sounds like the you know while this is a promising area of study, the tumbleweed rover nut remains to you know remains to be fully cracked. But a lot of the science around it. Um, I, I thought it was interesting because it kind of helps illustrate what really works about the the tumbleweed, the plant as a as an as an evolved solution and as an as an, as an evolved approach to the landscape, and what wouldn't work uh, for a probe or a vehicle. Mm-hmm. So some of the designs do tend towards non-smooth surfaces, like the real tumbleweed, and there have even been some experiments with oblong shapes. Uh, but these produce bouncing due to acquired kinetic energy, something Lorenz writes is, quote, not recommended for an attractive vehicle design. <laughs> and I think that's quite telling, again, because with, the, with these tumbleweed rover designs, uh, we are trying to solve a human vehicle problem, how to move a thing from one place to another and potentially to other locations and to control the movement as well. The tumbleweed plant, on the other hand, is not trying to arrive at a destination. It's, again, all about the journey and that it, and it's going to drop its various seeds along the way. Uh, and bouncing, far from being a danger to sensitive cargo and, and uh, you know, sensors and whatnot, uh, this can help free the seeds that need to be dropped. And, um, you know, and again, naturally, tumbleweed plants are not perfect spheres. They're, they're, they're vaguely spherical and are, I guess, more bush-shaped than anything. Um, as opposed to like, you know, a ball shape. They're more shaped like a turkey than they are shaped like a beach ball. <laughs> uh, if if a turkey were likely to be like one to two meters in width. Yeah. And was like, you know, light enough to be pushed around in the wind. Yeah, they're, they're really, it's, it's really remarkable. All right. Well, I think it's time to talk a bit about the history of the tumbleweed. And one of the strangest facts about the tumbleweed, this icon of the American West, is that it is not actually native to North America. It's a fairly late arrival, in fact. Uh, One of the most common plants categorized as a tumbleweed in the United States today is the one we focused on a good bit already, uh, known sometimes as Calitragus or uh, previously known as Salsolatragus. The common name, again, is Prickly Russian Thistle. The name gives it away a bit where it actually comes from. This is a species originating in the steppes of Eastern Europe and Western Asia, uh, probably around the area of Ukraine. And I found a very interesting description of tumbleweeds in an 1852 botanical reference book by an English surgeon and botanist named Arthur Henfrey. Uh, It's called The Vegetation of Europe, Its Conditions and Causes, uh, published by J. Van Voorst in 1852. And uh, he gets to talking about tumbleweeds in the section of the book where he's cataloging the plant life of the Russian steppe. So, again, you you have to imagine that at the time this was written in the 1850s, there was probably no trace of this type of tumbleweed in the United States. Uh, But here's what Henfrey says. In these regions, the wormwoods and thistles grow to a size unknown in the west of Europe. It is said that the thistle bush found where these abound is tall enough to hide a Cossack horseman. (laughs) The natives call all these rank weeds useless for pasture, 
Burian, and with the dry dung of the flocks, this constitutes all the fuel they possess. Oh, and I should note, by the way, that while he keeps saying thistle because that is the common name and, and what they were classifying it as back then, I think technically in the in the modern botanical sense, the tumbleweeds we're referring to are not true thistles. They're not thistles, but that's what they're called here. So Henfrey goes on. One curious plant of the thistle tribe has attracted the notice of most travelers, the wind witch, as it is called by the German colonists, or leap the field, as the Russian name may be translated. It forms a large globular mass of light wiry branches interlaced together, and in autumn decays off at the root, the upper part drying up. It is then at the mercy of the autumn blast, and it is said that thousands of them may sometimes be seen coursing over the plain, rolling, dancing, and leaping over the slight inequalities, often looking at a distance like a troop of wild horses. Mm. It is not uncommon for twenty or thirty to become entangled into a mass and then roll away, as Mr. Cole says, quote, like a huge giant in his seven-league boots." Oh my goodness! Yeah, this is yeah. this is exactly what I was seeing on the highway uh, a couple of weeks yeah. ago. Because sometimes you would see two that were—I uh, saw at one point two of them that were bound together—and this monstrosity was what uh, jumped in front of a semi truck. Wow! I I kind of wish I'd seen that. Oh, oh but I got to finish the last thing he says because he, he describes the demise of this uh, this this giant in the seven league boots. Uh, quote, thousands of them are annually blown into the Black Sea, and here, once in contact with water, in an instant lose the fantastic grace belonging to their dry, unsubstantial texture. They are like a, it's, it is like a witch, like a, a melting in the water, because losing yes. all of its power. <laughs> so good. The wind witch. That, uh, I've been captivated by that ever since I read it. These things are, are wind witches. Um, but so, okay, this is describing something in like the, what they're calling the Russian steppe, probably the area around the Black Sea, the Black Sea Basin, or probably around Ukraine. So how does this type of plant end up in the United States? Well, beginning in the later decades of the 19th century, reports of a similar plant, I can't be sure they're talking about exactly the same species, but it seems likely to me. Uh, they're, they're at least definitely talking about the same type of plants, some kind of tumbleweed. Um, reports of a similar type of plant start pouring in from places in the Great Plains of North America, places like South Dakota. Um, and uh, it's hard to know exactly when they showed up, but a, a commonly reported claim uh, put forward in a source I'm going to mention in a minute here is that they, they arrived in the United States around the year 1870 or sometime in the early 1870s, possibly in shipments of flax seed contaminated with these Russian thistle seeds. Um, uh, a commonly given date is 1873. It is interesting to read reports from the early decades of their proliferation on the continent. Uh, by the 1890s, invasive Russian thistle had become such a problem that the U.S. Department of Agriculture Botany Division issued a farmer's bulletin on the subject, authored by someone named L.H. Dewey. Uh, the L.H. stands for Lister Hoaxy Dewey. Uh, so you can actually look up a, a PDF of this yourself online. It's called The Russian Thistle and Other Troublesome Weeds in the Wheat Region of Minnesota and North and South Dakota. Uh, this document is actually more interesting and fun to read than you might expect for a farmer's bulletin. Uh, so, so there's a number of tidbits I want to discuss from it. But uh, first of all, I just want to read directly from it as it is discussing the difficulty that farmers in the plains were facing due to the proliferation of, of tumbleweeds, probably from, from Russian thistle. So Dewey writes, Some of its special characteristics render this thistle much more troublesome than other weeds. Again, it's not actually a thistle. Uh, it is armed with spines quite as sharp and much stronger than those of common thistles. Because of these, it is difficult to drive horses through a field where the plants are abundant. In some sections, the farmers find it necessary to bind leathers about the horse's legs while at work. Horses running in the pasture are often injured by having the skin on their legs badly lacerated. The spines breaking off under the skin cause festering sores. These sores are caused by the irritation, however, not by any poisonous property as is frequently supposed." 
hunters find difficulty in getting their dogs to work well for prairie chickens in the stubble, and the dogs are sometimes injured by the sharp spines. Thrashers find it almost impossible to get gloves thick enough to keep the spines out of their fingers, yet thin enough to work with. Uh, oh, and then he talks about uh, how these tumbleweeds can be a fire hazard, of course. Uh, so he says, uh, the Russian thistle is the worst rolling tumbleweed on the prairie, and in time of prairie fires is easily blown across a firebreak of any width, carrying fire to stacks and buildings. Yeah. Um, so you know, this is the thing. Not only can they potentially be a fire hazard once they arrive at sort of a termination point, you know, when they're stuck against a fence or a house, uh, but they can be on fire and be in motion. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and probably one of the more outrageous examples of this um, uh, was making the rounds on the internet, I think back in 2014. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it took place at a 150-acre um, prescribed burn at the Rocky Mountain Arsenal near Denver, Colorado. And if you haven't seen this footage, look it up. I think it was making the rounds, especially on like BuzzFeed News and stuff. Um, but you know, what you see is you see firefighters out there, you know, engaging in this, um, you know, intentional burn of the um, of the landscape there, and uh, a dust devil kicks up. So you know, like a small uh, vortex. And what does it do? It starts pulling tumbleweeds up into it. And uh, and and this is I've seen footage of this occurring um, with tumbleweeds elsewhere, except in this case the tumbleweeds are also on fire. So it is uh, uh, essentially a dust devil of flaming tumbleweeds. Yeah, it, it's like a, it looks like a tornado made out of tumbleweeds that are on fire. Right. It seems. It, it, I mean, it just sounds like a Sharknado sort of a situation, but yeah. no, it it exists. I mean, it would seem like the main characteristics that are the problem here are that tumbleweeds are uh, – so they're brittle, you know, fuel – they're wood, so they're, they're mm-hmm. highly flammable, and they're very low density, so they can right. easily be moved around. And, of course, when there is fire, that creates drafts of air that, that suck and blow things in different directions on its own. Uh, so, yeah, t- tumbleweeds plus fire just seems like a nightmare to try to control. Now, naturally, one thing you would do uh, to prevent fire from spreading, say, in a prairie region is you would have what are known as fire breaks. You would have, you know, like ditches or areas of cleared land where there's no fuel, you know. So it's just like if there is a fire, it's going to be stopped here because there's no fuel for it to spread across. But if you have tumbleweeds, first of all, they're, they're, they're likely to gather in fire breaks anyway because that's the kind of, you know, they will fall. They will settle their seeds in cleared land and grow, grow there so they can grow in fire breaks. Uh, when they're tumbling, they'll probably get stuck in fire breaks and pile up there. And uh, and even if there's nothing in the fire break, if there's tumble, if there are tumbleweeds burning on one side, they can easily leap over the break and then just spread it to the other side. You know, when I w- first encountered this, I also was thinking, okay, well, th- maybe this is just a rare thing, though—a flaming tumbleweed. I mean, just because it's on BuzzFeed News doesn't mean it's a, an accurate uh, representation of reality. Um, but then I was looking around at some various folkloric. Uh, references to tumbleweeds, most of which I'm going to save for part two. But there was this one bit from a a folklorist by the name of Thomas Edward Cheney, who lived 1901 through 1993, who specialized in Mormon folklore and folklore of the Badlands. And he wrote this in 1959 uh, in Scandinavian Immigrant Stories. Quote, a story glows like a tumbleweed on fire as it passes on. It may die after a brief and flashy existence, or it may be retained in the mind of a jokester until he dies and leaves his legacy to members of his family. They, in turn, recall sporadically the stories which particularly resemble their experiences. Many such stories die without the folklorist or anyone else getting them into the written language. Now, that's just a good quote about just sort of the nature of storytelling, and I just kind of like what he's actually trying to relate there. But I also love that like the, the here is the flaming tumbleweed as a as a metaphor to explain that, and clearly like one that's not so novel as to be foreign, I guess, to people of 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 this part of the country. Like he he doesn't have to stop and say, "Let me tell you a story about a tumbleweed that once caught on fire," and then uh-huh. I'm going to use that to make my point. No, like the tumbleweed on fire seems to be just you know more or less off the shelf, even if it feels a little novel to many of us. Oh, but I I like that metaphor actually. It has both. 
in terms of oral storytelling, it has both its strength and its fragility there because mm-hmm. a tumbleweed on fire will burn up pretty quickly. And so it's, it's very fleeting. It's very ephemeral, but on the other hand, it's, you know, it spreads super easily. So yeah. if it, if it reaches another fuel source, there it goes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but anyway, so in this uh, document, this uh, Department of Agriculture document from the 1890s, uh, L.H. Dewey goes on to talk about some of the same kind of problems we've already uh, discussed in the modern age, you know, that they will pile up against buildings, that they will uh, pile up against fences, that they will, will choke fields, that they will, uh, even if you kind of mulch them down, uh, they, they may do some good in, in nourishing the land, but just that they're hard to deal with when they're in their bulky form. They just get stuck in all kinds of stuff and, and cause these huge problems. Uh, there was another very interesting note I came across in this that was more uh, just a kind of uh, something mentioned in passing in this document, but I thought it was sociologically interesting. So in discussing where Russian thistle comes from, Dewey says all the evidence points to the idea that it was imported in contaminated shipments of flax seeds that were uh, received in, in the States around 1873 or in the early 1870s. And then he goes on to say, quote, there is evidently no foundation whatever for the theory, which is too often related as a fact, that it was first sown in South Dakota by immigrants, either for forage or to inflict an injury on an enemy. So at least as early as the 1890s, people were spreading a completely baseless rumor that this invasive plant was due to immigrants who, who had sowed the weed on purpose, uh, possibly even with the intent to cause harm. Uh. Very much a, a, a Mo on the Simpsons immigrants. I knew it was them kind of moment. <laughs> uh, but then later, Dewey is talking about how quickly it, uh, he's trying to document how quickly the Russian thistle spread. Uh, he says, quote, in many localities where a few plants were first seen four or five years ago, every spot of land where the sod has been broken is now occupied on every badger burrow and overfed spot in the prairie on every roadside railroad embankment fire break and neglected garden on every field of early plowed land or stubble may be seen a patch of thistles again not thistles these are the tumbleweeds uh, the seeds are not here and there as with eastern weeds but they are everywhere the few plants introduced four or five years ago have seen the land for miles in every direction. Um, and then the last thing in the document is a section I actually found somewhat hilarious where he issues recommendations that are, they're like a pure, just like vilification propaganda. I mean, not like obviously, you know, these tumbleweeds can be a huge problem and I'm not saying like, Oh, just ignore them. But he like recommends that uh, every schoolhouse in America <laughs> should have a Russian thistle in the schoolhouse so that the pupils may become familiar with it quote and teach them to kill it wherever they find it <laughs> as they would kill a rattlesnake. <laughs> oh my goodness. I really feel for for many of us that you know that didn't like grow up uh, in tumbleweed country or, or haven't been visiting tumbleweed country during the times that they're uh, on the move. Uh, like this is just kind of a uh, this this great adversary that's been there the whole time, and we and, and I feel like I didn't really recognize it until just now. Well, I think it is technically now in all 48 contiguous U.S. states, so yeah, it's, yeah. it's everywhere. Yeah, like I mean, it is in Georgia, the state where we. Um, we record this, but I, I I do not recall ever having seen it or you know identified it as such while I was here. I certainly have not had that experience of um, you know the herds of, uh, of of them moving across the highways. So, uh, I, I can only imagine uh, how Georgia drivers would uh, would, would respond to that. Oh, we don't take kindly to stuff invading our highways. Now, I just wanted to mention a few other interesting facts I came across in another article. Uh, I was trying to look for a, a more recent article uh, about the, the spread of the different tumbleweed species, uh, mm-hmm. especially Russian, th- Russian thistle and, and related species in the U.S. Uh, so there was one I read from 2018 in the UC Boulder Colorado Arts and Sciences magazine by a UC Boulder professor of evolutionary biology and ecology named Jeff Mitten. 
And Mitten covers some of the same ground we've already talked about that, for example, that tumbleweed is a is a structure, it is a type of strategy for reproduction uh, that is employed by many plants, but that in the American context, most of the time when people see a tumbleweed or talk about a tumbleweed, they're usually talking about this Russian thistle species, uh, Salsola tragus or Cali tragus. And uh, he says, interestingly, that genomic analysis in California has revealed that the tragus, the main species, was introduced to the U.S. uh, multiple times, at least twice from Mm. different places. Uh, So there were multiple introduction events. And uh, he emphasizes, again, something that that has come out from multiple sources we've looked at, that tumbleweeds became especially common as they took hold in otherwise barren areas or in, quote, overgrazed sites. Uh, so abandoned farmlands or, or uh, overused ranch lands could be especially good places for, uh, uh, for, for these things to take root. They do better in cleared land where they can scatter freely, where their seeds don't have to compete with native grasses and shrubs. So it seems like one way to have a place resist colonization by the uh, – uh, but by the tumbleweeds is just to have plenty of natural native uh, vegetation covering the land. One last thing I, I want to mention that, that Mitten brings up in this article is that, uh, you know, sometimes discussion of, uh, of aggressively spreading non-native uh, species of plants can, uh, I don't know, cause people to think of a plant as being wholly without use or merit in any, you know, can provide no nourishment to anything at all. And while tumbleweeds can certainly be a, a big problem for, for humans and, and other life forms, uh, Mitten points out that some animals can eat the sprouts of, of these tumbleweed plants and, and can get nourishment from them, especially when they're young and green. Mm-hmm. But he says that uh, herbivores do tend to avoid them once they've reached their, their thorny, brittle adult state. Though he points out one interesting historical fact about their use as nutrition in in American history, he says that tumbleweeds, quote, were one of the last plants growing during the Dust Bowl, 1930 to 1936, when many farmers and ranchers were unable to keep anything growing to feed cows and horses. Russian thistle hay is credited with saving the beef cattle industry when other sources of hay disappeared. Oh, wow. So this is a species of plant that, that plays rough. But when when nobody else can hack it, it is still there. And, you know, in its young form, it, it can be eaten. It may not be the best food source in the world, but, but the bovines can ingest. <laughs> anyway, I think that'll have to do it for part one of our series on the wind witch, the tumbleweed. But uh, we've got a lot more interesting stuff to talk about in part two. Oh, yeah. We've got some some crazy uh, tumbleweed variants uh, <laughs> that may interest you. We've got, we got, we've got a few Mongolian riddles. Uh, we're going to share, uh, so there there should be a, a, a lot of a lot of interesting territory to cover. Uh, but we're going to go ahead and let this particular tumbleweed episode snap off uh, at the roots and uh, begin tumbling its way uh, to listeners out there. Uh, obviously, even hopefully part- on fire. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, with creativity in the metaphoric sense, right? Um, now, I'm sure we have a number of listeners out there who have a lot more experience, direct experience with uh, tumbleweeds. Uh, and yes, we would love for you to share your experiences with us uh, encountering tumbleweeds uh, rolling across the highways and into your house and so forth. Um, uh, let us know. You know how to get in touch with us. Uh, and we'll share that information here in just a second. But hey, in the meantime, if you would like to listen to uh, additional episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you can find them in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. Core episodes publish on Tuesdays and Thursdays. On Mondays, we do listener mail. On uh, Wednesdays, uh, we do uh, an artifact or a monster fact episode. And on Fridays, we do Weird House Cinema. That's our time to set aside most serious matters and uh, just uh, focus in on a strange film and discuss a strange film. Um, Oh, I should also point out that um, I was just looking to, to revamp some of our um, you know, placeholders, uh, social media presences, and uh, our Instagram account has been like locked up for over a year. Nobody knows how to get into it. It's a ghost <laughs> house. So we have a new Instagram. If you're into Instagram and you want to follow us, you can follow us at stbympodcast. Uh, that's our handle there. Uh, but I should also point out 
that uh, we also have a separate Instagram for Weird House Cinema, and that one is just Weird House Cinema. That's the, the, that's the Instagram uh, handle. And uh, that one I've actually updated, so it has like a still from every episode of Weird House Cinema that we've done thus far. Uh, so that's wow. a fun way if you just want to follow Weird House Cinema stuff. And I'll probably be updating that, because every now and then when I'm watching a movie for Weird House, I'll have to like take a picture of something on the on the on the TV screen, uh, mm-hmm. and this might be a place where I would share that. So, uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm liable to actually use that account for uh, uh, things beyond just the, the the mentioning of new episodes. Ooh, this is this is phone camera photo of a TV screen. Yeah, yeah, that's no how medium I has more heart. <laughs> yeah, I, I think the first one, the uh, uh, post I did on that Instagram ac- account was a, a, a was just a picture I took of the screen during Hands of Steel, uh, where it has the the text at the end that pops up and says, "It was a day in our near future. The era of the cyborg had begun." <laughs> Arizona movie, so it ties in to what we're talking about here today. Not unrelated to tumbleweeds. There you go. Drifting along with the tumbling cyborg. Yeah. Okay, anyway, huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hi, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.